From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new FPNA podcast. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we will welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA Today. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. Today's guest is Jack Alexander. A little bit about Jack. Jack currently lives in North Carolina. He's had a distinguished 44-year career. He has been a CFO of companies such as Mercury Computer Systems, EG&G. He currently runs Jack Alexander & Associates, a strategic and financial advisory firm. He's also been a lecturer at Babson College in their MBA program, an author of two books, one called Financial Planning and Analysis and Performance Management, published by Wiley, and another about dashboards called Performance Dashboards and Analysis for Value Creation. He has a CPA and an MBA from Ryder University. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here. Well, we're really excited to have you. We're thrilled you know, to welcome you on our show today. So we'll go ahead and get started here. You've had a long and distinguished career, you know, 44 years working in accounting and finance. What changes have you seen over those years in finance and specifically in FP&A? Yeah, great question. And I use the framework people, process, and technology for a lot of things and, and add environment to that. So, you know, from a technology standpoint, it's been an unbelievable transformation over that period of time. I mean, I started my career with Cooper's Library in 1978, and we really used spreadsheets, green accounting paper. And if you needed sure. more than 32 columns, you taped them together and you had to run a 10 key <laughs> uh, calculator and you actually had to have a competency in running that and being able to cross foot and foot documents like that. Um, so it was it was very interesting. The business computing was done on very large mainframe computers, even in separate buildings or in large installations on site. Very hard to access to input data. You had to use card key readers. And it's just unbelievable to think about the transformation that's occurred on technology. You know, starting, I can remember when uh, the Apple IIs came out and VisiCalc was the spreadsheet program at that time. And it morphed into um, uh, Lotus and Symphony and then into Excel finally. And of course, Excel has continued to uh, increase the, uh, the level of uh, things that they can do over time. And fortunately, mainframe computing has also transformed and it's now more accessible. We can impact, uh, input it directly, and we can also uh, extract things directly and, and be able to access all that information. So huge technology changes. From a people standpoint, um, this is very important. And people, I think, of individuals as well as the organization. You know, when, uh, when I started out, the analysis function was typically quite small, and it reported into the control function. And interestingly enough, it would be one or two analysts and they would be mostly generating month end reports, variance analysis, and they would do the annual budget or plan. You know, now, of course, it's transformed to where the analysis function has largely been pulled out and often reports directly to the CFO uh, under the moniker of FP&A. And we pulled all the analysis functions and consolidated them. And I think that's important and a good move with one limitation. Uh, on the process, you know, we talked about uh, what happened in the 70s, and of course that's morphed in the 80s. I worked for that company, EG&G, and started out in the operations. It was a publicly traded company, very, very good financial and control systems. So we had monthly uh, forecasting, monthly analysis. We implemented rolling forecasts in 1987. You know, and we changed the whole budgeting, moved away from budgeting and much more of a reliance on uh, a business outlook. So it ju- it's just been uh, unbelievable the changes I've seen over that time. And I, I laugh about that. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. And some mm-hmm. of the fundamental things that uh, that were important back then are still important now. 
And Paul, I found an article uh, probably in 78, 79. I was fascinated, one of auditing firms, fascinated by the CFO, controller, and this analyst group in impacting the business and understanding the business. I found that so much more uh, interesting than the auditing part of it. So um, I found an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think. I can't remember who the author was or who the CEO that was being interviewed. But the question was, what do you look for in a CFO? And it was titled Top Gun CFOs. And that uh, the CEO answered four things. One is credibility of forecasts. The second is, and I love this, dispassionate, hard-headed analysis. The third is a balanced focus between the cost model and growth, and finally, kinship and teamwork. And that still incorporates what we're trying to do in FP&A today. And I sort of referred to this, I've kept it for 40 some years, I've referred to that over time and always kind of checked myself in terms of, of uh, how I was going and how the organization was going on those fronts. And of course, kinship and teamwork, you know, has morphed into an expression we use as uh, as business partner these days. So there's been a lot that's changed, but this idea of really understanding the business, partnering with the operating and uh, an executive team to really add insight and to achieve the goals is really what's important. So, you know, I think, uh, again, a lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. From an environmental standpoint, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty and stuff happening in the 70s, too. And we're being reminded of some of that, right? An oil crisis, a, um, a competitive threat from a far eastern country, Japan, who was knocking the cover off the ball in terms of technology and autos and things like that. We had high inflation, the Cold War. And so we're sort of back to the future in, in 2012, 2022 on these things. Uh, however, I think the pace of change and the level of uncertainty is at a level that I haven't seen it over those 44 years. And so that really requires us to uh, hit the pause button and think about how we want to change uh, to be able to, to, to cope with that and to continue to add value uh, to the folks that we're serving. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that answer. I love you sharing, you know, how you started with mainframe and, you know, the green spreadsheets. And, you know, for me, I remember getting my first computer when I was in high school and using, you know, Lotus 123 and then Quattro Pro and, you know, some of those precursors to Excel. So it's, we've come a long way from, you know, 30, 40 years ago, as you mentioned, but it's amazing how much th things do stay the same. And I think the other thing I love in your answer is just the uncertainty in the world we have today. You know, I mean, the oil crisis, conflicts abroad, um, the global pandemic. I mean, I would imagine, you know, the last two years, you know, in some ways it may remind you of, you know, different periods. But like you said, it's probably different than any other time in your career. More uncertainty, more, you know, more change. How, you know, kind of speaking to that uncertainty, what advice would you offer to people in FP&A to, how do you think about managing all this uncertainty we, we deal with today? Well, I think, first of all, it, it really underscores the need to focus on the future and not be looking at the past. And we've got to very quickly get our arms around the past historical results and get them out there. But they're of almost limited usefulness now because things are changing on a day-to-day -day basis. So. I think uh, shifting the emphasis to looking forward into the future and trying to understand what the drivers are, and then also um, looking external, and this is really important. Uh, FP&A used to be directed primarily to inside the operations, so the four walls, manufacturing, mm -hmm. sales, marketing, supply chain, all of that good stuff. And I think it's really important, and FP&A can add a lot of value by looking externally at the information that's out there and paying attention to what's going on with customers, with the broader industry, uh, the competitive environment, financial performance, interest rates, economic forecasts, all of those things, and integrate them into the work that we're doing in FP&A. And then we got a really good chance to, to add value. And part of that then is also recognizing the uh, potential value of scenario planning is I think at the end of the day, that's really the primary tool we have to cope with uh, the high uncertainty that we have right now. 
No, that's a great point. I appreciate, you know, the scenario planning. I love the external factors. And, you know, you've held a number of CFO positions over your career, you know, including some large public companies. So what role did FP&A play in your career development? You know, as I mentioned, um, I was drawn to that. And when I left public accounting, I went to uh, essentially a uh, assistant controller position in a division of this uh, large publicly traded company. And I was responsible for transaction processing and control and reporting, but also uh, essentially most of the analytical responsibilities. And we had an analyst reporting to me, but, uh, but I was engaged heavily in that process. And I loved it. And I just uh, really enjoyed the ability for us to look across all the data that was at our fingertips and try and make sense of that and communicate that to the rest of the organization. And frankly, we didn't call it FP&A back then or anything. It was just management analysis and reporting, probably, if that. But it was very interesting because I think my passion for that and my investment in time and energy for that definitely uh, contributed to my career growth. And so, you know, for Mm -hmm. the control and CFO path, it's important to have, you know, a number of boxes checked. Um, the FP&A one, I think, is really important in being able to understand, digest, contribute to the business performance, and share that with the rest of the team is very, very important. And so it, it uh, absolutely contributed to my, uh, my career growth. No, that's great. And, you know, something interesting, I was reading an article the other day that talked about how a much larger percentage of C- CFOs are starting to come out of FP&A, having spent more of their career there versus the traditional just controller route. Not to say some haven't been controllers, but you're definitely seeing a growth in how FP&A is viewed and the value it brings to an organization. So I'm curious to know, how did your you know C-suite experience change your view of FP&A? What, what was it like being you know a CFO and working with FP&A? Yeah, great question because... You know, that's where um, at the CFO role, you're sitting between the board of directors, the executives, and all, all of the people within the organization, the financial community, the analysts. So it, it was just a, it's a terrific uh, experience to be talking to somebody from Fidelity, an investor, one day to be reviewing an operating plan the next day, and then to be reviewing cash forecast and managing the investment portfolio the next. But what it really did in my mind, Paul, was connect all the dots. And I began to see how little um, most of the people in the organization, even in the C-suite, understood the drivers of value creation and what drives the share price and be able to link that to operating processes and activities that uh, they can relate to and that they understand how it's all connected. So I developed this uh, this overall context view, which um, which was very helpful. But you know what I found with the analysts that uh, that I was working with, um, many of them were quite good, but there were some limitations that were there that I, I thought we needed to improve mm-hmm. on for sure. And one is that they were very good at producing the numbers, but not so good at making observations, takeaways, and recommendations. And so uh, it usually only happened once, but an analyst would bring in a spreadsheet or a document to me and said, here's the analysis. And I would look at it and just nicely push it back to them and said, that's not an analysis. You know, there's no, there's no words, there's no description. Um, what did you take away from this exercise? What I often found is they haven't, re- they haven't really stepped back and looked at it from the objective of the analysis. They just answer, answer the primary question. And so yeah, I tried to ask people to come back with, you know, summarizing it, four or five bullet points, uh, what takeaways, what recommendations are there, are there different alternative actions we should consider? So that was really important. The other thing was that I found that many analysts had a narrow perspective, a financial lens that they looked at the world. So everything was seen through that lens of an accountant. And without a context, they often missed the big picture. And that contributed to their perception as an accountant, you know, pigeonholed as an accountant. So they were only looking mm-hmm. at, at the numbers aspect. Um, then they had trouble 
producing presentations or summaries or reports that effectively communicated the findings. And I think that is probably the single most important factor in career growth and in terms of contribution, because if you complete a great analysis, but you can't effectively present it or communicate it, it's not it's not worth the paper that it's been printed on or the screen that you're looking at, right? So that was really important. And we tried to emphasize and develop that. And that's a really important competency that people need to need to develop. And I think um, looking back over my career, the people ahead of me and the people that have followed me, the, the folks that could communicate have a, uh, a profound advantage over those that struggle with it. And so it's something that uh, we all need to work at and try and improve on. And we can all uh, improve for sure. The other thing that uh, I always found interesting is that they didn't view their function. This is the analyst as a service function. They viewed it sort of as if it was a service function, it was satisfying the CFO and controller. It wasn't serving the, the broader organization. So we actually turned it into a financial services organization, the whole finance structure, treasury, tax, everything, so that we could we could serve and speak with a unified voice on things. And so that service orientation is really important. And we began asking operating executives questions like, do you use the information that we give you? And oftentimes the answer was no. <laughs> when I started at one company, yeah. they spent uh, two man weeks, person weeks, uh, probably more than that. Um, it was two elapsed weeks developing a management reporting package. I went around with a controller when I joined a CFO and asked the uh, 17 recipients of that if they used it. What did they read? One person looked at one schedule is what we found. So we nuked it and got back a, a ton of time, and we replaced that with two dashboards, one that tracked what was really critical to understand whether we were uh, on track to hit the, uh, the quarterly performance, very important as a publicly traded company, and the other one with a, a little bit of a longer-term view. And then we asked the executives, well, what is it you would like help with? You know, what... Um, what issues around uh, understanding information are you struggling with? Um, what, what are your major objectives for the year? And how can we help? And do you view us as a service organization that you can tie into? And that, that just made a huge change in the dynamics of the relationship where people then become uh, started to come and solicit uh, our input, our participation and things at a much earlier date and viewing us as a service function, you know, sometimes those lights come on that just change the whole picture of things. And that, that clearly is one that does, um, you know, my experience. Yeah, no, thanks. There's a lot there. And one that kind of really stood out to me is I love the idea. And we're seeing it much more today of making sure the business knows that finance is a service organization. We're there to serve the business, right? You hear the term business partnering today, right? That's kind of the buzzword. But I love that idea. I still remember, you know, having one leader that I'd worked really closely with and really it's when I really gained an appreciation for business partnering. And you know, I can remember him saying, you've helped shape the P&L, which says, OK, you're not just reporting. You've made a difference to the business. And finance can do that when they do the things you talk about, when they're able to communicate, when they provide more than a report. We've all been there. Like you mentioned, one out of 17 people is using it. I mean, I think every company has that experience. And so is the analyst just doing reporting or are they actually providing analysis and trying to influence the business? And so I, I love those things there and just how you, you know, your experience in the C-suite helped uh, improve your FP&A organization and have it be a service organization. I think that's great. So, you know, kind of next question here, you know, one thing that I've seen it vary from company to company is the role that FP&A plays in strategic planning. You know, so from your experience, what role do you think FP&A should play in strategic planning? Yeah, that's a great question, a, a, a terrific issue. And I hear a lot of finance people say they don't have a seat at the table in strategic mm -hmm. planning. In fact, I was at a very large conference, last one I went to before uh, COVID, and the speaker before me answered that question and said, you just have to pound on the table and insist that you're 
you're a, and I'm like, uh, I think that's the wrong answer. Um, here's, here's what I recommend. One is that you demonstrate that you have a capability to contribute. So you're invited to those, to those meetings and sessions. And, um, when you're there, there are a couple of key areas. And even if you want to get invited to it, there are a couple of key things you can do to, uh, to directly contribute and also demonstrate the fact that you should be at the table. So there's two major, um, details here. One is being a, uh, prepare of strategic analysis. And the other one is assisting in developing the strategy and the plan. So for strategic analysis, of course, this is right in our wheelhouse, right? So um, provide historical context. So put together a three or four year financial summary and not just the P&L. And I'm a big one in terms of comprehensive financial performance. So I want to see um, a capsule P&L, I like to use capsule financial statements. No need to show every line in the income statement. Show the three or four key ones, right? I want key balance sheet accounts or net investment accounts. I want a capsule cash flow. And I also like to look at valuation and returns, ROIC, uh, I always like to emphasize. And do that over a three or four year period of time. Do that for each significant business unit other summaries uh, of performance looking back three or four years are really important. And, you know, that sets the stage. That's so important because as I'm sure you've experienced, Paul, we have these hockey stick plans mostly where people are preparing plans that are completely disconnected from recent performance and recent performance trends. And so that's a way of, uh, of challenging that and eliminating that potential, uh, that potential risk. Another area is portfolio analysis. So uh, Boston Consulting Group, McKinsey, almost every consulting firm has a grid that you can look at portfolios, right, for product lines or business units or subsidiaries. And generally, it's some profitability versus growth matrix. And you can actually do a bubble chart by posting those individual product lines in there to see what the overall portfolio looks like. So are all of our bubbles in the low growth, high profitability area? How much are represented in the star area where they're growing and profitable? Um, who are the question marks or what used to be described as the dogs? That's unfair to dogs. But, uh, you know, who? Wh what are the ones that are not growing and are not profitable or generating cash flow? And obviously, those are targets to be addressed, perhaps. Uh, disposed of, perhaps uh, uh, restructured or in some way improved so that they uh, contribute to the future performance. SWOT analysis, uh, finance can contribute to that and encourage the development of these things. Again, if you're not invited to the table, do these things and share them with the people that are at the table, right? And they'll inform and also uh, demonstrate your capability to contribute these areas. So strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Again, harder than it sounds to do effectively, but very, very important. Another one is to do analysis of, uh, do some benchmarking and competitor analysis. And so I find this is limited in most strategic plans. And so what I like to encourage, Paul, is that we pick a competitor, and it's much easier for publicly traded companies, and we actually go through their SEC filings and we listen to their conference calls and we look at the investor reports and no operating executive, very few of them are going to have the patience or the understanding to do that. Read the MDNA, the management's discussion and analysis for those businesses. Look at the risk factors, look through the critical footnotes and then synthesize this down to a, a few pages of summary, graphic presentations and also tables. You know, in the 10Ks, companies uh, are required to disclose what their strategy is, who their competitors are, define their markets, tons of information that's useful in preparing this strategic context. So um, then I summarize all of those for competitors, customers, suppliers, and then I pick a few wild cards or best practice companies, and I look at them on 10 or 12 different categories. How fast are they growing? What's their profitability level? 
What's their asset turnover and investment structure? What's their ROIC? And what's their valuation metrics, price to sales and price to, uh, to EBITDA? And so that just almost always generates a huge discussion about uh, why our performance is different or why the market is growing faster than we are or vice versa. And again, just very, very important. So even human capital, uh, finance should, um, should link up with human capital until very recently, there weren't a lot of analytics done around the workforce. Um, you know, everything from demographics, which has really come back to bite many organizations because the boomers are retiring at 10,000 a day or something like that. And that was accelerated during COVID. But also, what are the skill sets? How many people have been in their positions for more than five years? How many people have been with the company for more than five or 10 years? And just stratifying all that. Uh, huge, huge insights in terms of the uh, the workforce and how you're growing and developing people. So, you know, that analysis helps to inform the thinking. And I think the most important part of strategic planning and thinking is that analysis and critical evaluation of where we stand and what the driving forces are. And then obviously finance can play a, a big role in converting that then into a strategy. And many times, back to scenario planning, many times, Companies will just have a single um, strategic plan and financial outcome going out three to five or seven years. And that really is, uh, is unfortunate because we can't predict three to five years out. There are a lot of variables that are, that are going to occur. <laughs> but why not create a base case, the, the current course that we're on, and then develop alternative scenarios Either other things that could happen, like what happens if a recession occurs within that planning horizon, or what happens if we take a more aggressive posture on growth or make acquisitions. And we can assist by modeling that all out and also then by uh, showing right through all the financials what that does in terms of value creation. So, you know, that is is um, essential and I think should be done with every strategic plan. And then we can think about the execution planning and make sure that that plan is grounded with an execution plan. And too often strategy plans aren't. So what are we gonna do tomorrow to execute the strategy? And how can we help the management team focus on it and make sure that we're making progress towards those ultimate strategic objectives that are gonna lead to the results that we're projecting. And oftentimes, you know, we fall down in that area. And that's why, you know, reporting uh, from FP&A and dashboards and monitoring and KPIs have to involve those strategic initiatives and objectives as well. So I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of opportunity there. And, you know, one of the things that I've observed is that when many finance people sit at the strap planning table, their contributions are generally um, nits and nats, pointing out typos and pointing out a number that doesn't tick and tie to a, a previous page or something like that. And that's uh, okay and probably best on the offline. But again, it just creates a perception that um, you're a numbers person and you don't understand the business. And so if you want to be at the table, you have to also develop a business perspective and a knowledge of the business, you know, which is a whole nother uh, another topic there, but it's, uh, it's very important. So finance should be at the table. And I think we have to demonstrate that we can, uh, we can add value and you can do that proactively by, uh, even if not invited by generating this analysis that we spoke about and sharing it. You know, I, I love that of, you know, even if you're not asked generating that analysis and I like how you mentioned the financials encapsulating them in a way that you're focusing on the key elements of the different financial statements, instead of just providing, you know, 10 pages of financial reports that nobody's going to read through, you know, talking about the external environment. I love your idea there of, you know, listening to other companies, uh, quarterly calls and also reading their statements. I did that. You know, I've done that with a competitor. I worked at reading one of the, you know, our main competitor statements that was public and it was great to learn, help you understand the business better, help you understand how they were thinking compared to how you were thinking. So I think there's a lot of value in what you said there. And, you know, I think if you don't have the seat at the table, I love that. Be pro 
proactive, provide analysis and provide value. And, you know, that goes a long way toward helping. One thing you mentioned there, you talked a little bit about, you know, making sure in those long range plans, you have scenario. You've been a big uh, advocate of scenario analysis and planning. You know, long before it's kind of become the super popular thing lately, the last couple of years with COVID, and you hear a ton talking about it. You know, in your mind, what are some of the major benefits of scenario planning? And how should an organization go about conducting scenario planning? Say they're not doing it today. How should they think about it? Sure. Yeah, I think scenario planning is a is a vital tool. And uh, just prior to COVID at that same conference, I gave a talk on scenario planning. And we had maybe it was a breakout session. Maybe there were 150 people in the group. It was a large conference. And I took a rump survey and just said, how many people next year are assuming a recession? So this was the fall of 2019. A couple of hands went up. How many are assuming continued economic expansion? A couple of hands went up. How many have not made an explicit assumption about the economy and their plans for next year, which they just finished because it was uh, November of, of 2019? Sure. Almost all the hands went up. And so there was a thought at that time that, that um, there was a, a strong chance that we were going to enter a recession uh, anyway, pre-COVID. And it was certainly um, an issue that was on the table. And so that further reinforced in my mind that uh, a lot of people are not, number one, thinking about different scenarios. Number two, looking externally at factors that could affect internal performance. And people will say, well, I'm not economic, in an economically sensitive business. Yes, you are, because you're going to be competing for labor or you are competing for labor. You're going to make assumptions about uh, salary increases and pricing and all that stuff. So it absolutely uh, impacts your performance. So in general scenario analysis, and it applies to strategic plans, but I even like it in annual plans and short-term forecasts. You know, it's a a really effective mechanism that allows us to say, you know, we're not certain what's going to happen in the future. And there are a lot of variables Mm -hmm. or assumptions that we have to make that are important to recognize. So a lot of people mix up scenario planning and sensitivity analysis. Uh, Scenario planning um, is different than sensitivity analysis, where sensitivity analysis just flexes two variables. What happens if we get a 10% change in revenue or a 2% change in in labor costs, that type of thing. A scenario analysis is a plausible future story. So it's something that could happen in the future and it's not just one variable. So for example, uh, a story will impact a lot of different areas in your P&L and balance sheet. That recession scenario we talked about could impact unit volumes, Uh, pricing, human capital turnover, compensation expense, customer mix, all those kinds of things. And so we step back and think about a recession scenario and we begin to think about how that might impact all of our uh, financials. And, you know, it's really important that it not be just a finance exercise. It has to be involving the business people to do this. It's not an Excel spreadsheet exercise, right? It will be done there um, or on some other vehicle, but it needs to have the critical inputs from business people and people that are looking out there. What are the competitive threats? What's happening in the markets? What's happening with the with the economy? So what I like about it, the benefits are that uh, it generates a deeper understanding into the critical drivers and assumptions, because we're going to take that base forecast that we start with. And then we're going to say, what are our critical assumptions that are in there? And too often they're buried in the, in the bowels of a, uh, uh, of a planning system in our, or an Excel spreadsheet. They're not called out explicitly. So we can't even identify them, let alone evaluate them. So very important to, to uh, explicitly identify and call out and have them be inputs that are easily flexed so that we can change them. We need to evaluate them and not just at the finance level, but at the executive level to see whether or not um, we're okay with that. It promotes uh, an awareness of uncertainty that might not exist. So it says, you know, we can't predict the future and we've got these three or four things out there that might happen, not saying they're going to happen, but if they do happen, here's the impact on the organization. 
And what's really important there is, again, it's not just a finance exercise, but we think about a scenario like recession. Well, what would happen to our business if that recession scenario plays out? And what actions would we take? And so that's really important. So we're defining upfront the actions that we might take um, if that scenario applies. And then a very important tool within that is a trigger event. And that trigger event says, okay, if customer consumer sentiment goes below some number, that triggers our contingency plan. And we immediately begin to take those actions. We're not going to wait until the Federal Reserve tells us six months later that we were in a recession uh, in the first quarter, which, which might be happening very soon, of course, right? So that's a lagging indicator. We want to be thinking about the leading indicators for our business. So um, that's really important, and it prepares us for, uh, for each of those scenarios. So a couple of things embedded in there, Paul. One is, you know, you have to identify the critical assumptions and uncertainties you have to have a robust model because if you have a clunky old planning model and you go and try and do scenario analysis, it's going to be very, very difficult. After you develop a base case, think about the alternative scenarios that might occur. Recession, competitor threat, black swan event. You know, everybody says, well, you can't predict them. But guess what? They've been happening every six or seven years. So I don't know whether it's going to be COVID or the financial crisis or what. It's likely, especially in a long-term horizon, that something is going to happen and the organization needs to think about um, ways in which it could be prepare itself for, uh, for crisis situations as they emerge. Uh, model those scenarios out, at, including identifying the, uh, the actions, the leading indicators, and the trigger events. And then really important and a big place for FP&A to add value is monitor those critical assumptions and highlight those that start to, to indicate that we're on track for a different scenario other than the base case so that we flag that for uh, for action. No, there's there's a lot there, and I appreciate that. I, I like how you uh, made sure to separate scenario planning and sensitivity analysis, right? Sensitivity analysis is adjusting a couple different variables and seeing how sensitive they are, what happens to your financials, which it was very different than necessarily a scenario analysis. Obviously, you can do some of that together, but scenario is trying to plan out for distinct situations that might happen. That's right. And so I appreciate that for the long, you know, that's one I've confused more than once in my career. And Sensitivity is useful. It's, it's good to know, but it's it's different from a scenario, not as, not as uh, insightful as a scenario analysis. No, I, w- I would agree with you there. And, you know, definitely something companies need to think about. And I loved how you said you can't have a clunky model. Because, you know, I know I've seen my share of, I like to call them, uh, I call them Franken models. <laughs> kind of reminds me a little bit of Frankenstein because they've been duct taped together and you're just looking at this thing and go, where do I start? Right. Versus if you have a clean model, that's really based off drivers. You can do that scenario planning. So I really, you know, I appreciate you mentioning that and just the importance of being able to design a good model so that you can support the business. So something you're a big advocate of and you talk about it in your book and you've talked about, you know, in your in your practice is the performance management frame, framework. You know, you're an advocate for the development of a comprehensive framework for performance management and FP&A. Can you tell us what you mean by a performance management framework and why is that so important? Why are you such a big advocate? Yeah, you know, I think there's a debate. In fact, I, I struggled with uh, how to title the most recent book that you referred to. And I went with FP&A, but I added performance management to that, right? And so I think FP&A might limit the context we're looking at um, for performance management, that, that label. So I think of performance management in a broad sense, in, in other words, the cycle of planning, execution planning, monitoring, uh, adjusting, reporting, et cetera. So it's a complete loop there, right? The management activity. And so I step back and think of it very broadly. And whenever I get engaged with anyone seriously about their FP&A or their performance management, I like to walk them through one of the best visuals I can suggest. And that's the instrument panel of a aircraft, flight instrument panel of an aircraft. And I use the space shuttle because it's, it's a neat graphic, but 
there are five things that, that I take away from that. One is that it's providing real-time and predictive insights, okay? Very important. Everything about the engine performance, airspeed, electronics, fuel levels, everything right there visually in front of them. And that visual impact is really important. The pilot, the operator of that craft can quickly scan the dashboard and understand exactly what's happening to their aircraft. There are alerts and alarms that go off if something is is uh, likely to impact or is awry with that. So the visual impact is really important. And also they're measuring what's important. They're watching what's important. So a hundred years of aviation experience and a lot of taxpayer dollars went into making sure that the important stuff is presented to the people that are executing that mission. And then fourth, it provides information, not just about the internal aspects of the craft, but about the environment. So there's radar, there's airspeed, there's wind speed, there's knowledge of competitive threats, there's knowledge if somebody has you on missile lock or something like that, where a craft can take evasive, uh, evasive maneuvers, thinking about a, a fighter craft. So it's looking mm -hmm. externally, which is really important. And finally, the pilot is able to use all of that information and combine it with their intuition and experience to execute the the mission, right? And so we're not handing that crew a 50-page Excel report when they land the plane that tells them how it <laughs> performed. That obviously, um, you know, wouldn't suffice when they're in the air trying to operate that craft and execute a mission. So the question is, do we have an instrument panel for our business? And are the uh, leaders of the organization using that to run the business and execute the mission? No, I, I love the instrument panel analogy because, right, you know, and I think of, you think of an airplane or whatever might be a car. The first thing you see is one of the most important, right? A car, first thing you see your miles you're going, you see how much fuel you have left, you see where your, your heat's at, what your RPMs are at, all those things that are going to critically impact you. You know, they're kind of what I like to think of as key drivers, right? If you're flying a plane, what's the key things you need to know? It's all... It's all right there and what's important is known. Exactly. Yeah. And the rear view mirror is fairly small. And by the way, you can't you can't drive the car <laughs> by looking at the rear view mirror, right? It's a, try it sometime. It's a <laughs> Yeah, that'd be I, I I love that. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a very good point, right? I mean, it's up in the top and you have to kind of go out of your way to look at it. It's small. It's the reminder, it's not about what's in the past. It's you know, what's impacting your go your go forward. Exactly. So that's a great that, that's a great analogy. I really like that. One question that comes up then is how do you develop that context for finding out what we should be looking at and putting into the performance framework? And so we start with that, that idea of the, of the uh, instrument panel. But then um, too often I see people going off and just creating dashboards and there's no architecture, there's no context created. So I like to grab things like the strategic plans the market and competitive analysis, strategic objectives, what the situational analysis is, the SWOT, performance assessment, that four or five year historical performance trend, valuation, value creation, what are the uh, critical programs that are underway? What are the key growth things that are happening? Uh, what's happening with human capital? And then you can start to think about what things you wanna measure and what are really important to the organization. So we might not be you know, putting this one KPI then in the mix of our thinking because we realize now that it's really not important in the grand scheme of things. So it allows you to really develop that uh, that context and to, and to think about that architecture. And that architecture is what are we going to measure then and how is that going to cascade down? And so how can we link our key measure, our key uh, results measures uh, lagging measures, for example, value creation or revenue growth to the operating processes and activities that contribute to those things and that people can relate to and that we can measure and that are predictive of future performance, right? So I like a uh, to start with value creation as the ultimate goal, right? And uh, I thought about six drivers of value, revenue growth, competitive position, operating effectiveness, capital effectiveness, 
cost of capital, and then the intangibles. And if you think about that, those are all basic inputs into a discounted cash flow evaluation model as well. But then I can take each of those and make that link down, cascading down, for example, revenue growth to think about what is our revenue growth? Where is it coming from in the future? Uh, How much is coming from retaining and growing existing customers? And what are the key performance indicators that we're going to make sure we track to ensure that we hit that number? For example, customer satisfaction, on-time delivery, those kinds of things. New customer acquisition, same thing. What's the pipeline look like? What are our actual experience? These are leading indicators that are ultimately going to show up in the P&L on the revenue line. Uh, What are we looking at in terms of new product introductions or program introductions? And are they on schedule? And do we still believe they will have that revenue contribution into the future that we did when we created the plan and so on. And so this becomes very, very powerful then because you link performance that people can relate to right up to the stock price. And you can create, if not a mathematical linkage, certainly a conceptual one, you know, that that shows how the performance will be reflected in terms of long-term value creation. No, I love that of making sure you're linking what you're you're measuring to long-term value creation and just the importance of what are the key things, right? Linking it back to the strategic and those operational plans and saying, okay, what are those leading indicators? What's going to help me predict where the business is going, set off the alarm bells when there's a problem versus just taking every metric you can find and throwing it on a dashboard, which seems to have kind of, you know, happened a lot over the last few years as data has just exploded, right? It's all available. So now you want to track everything. And I really like the process you've given there. There's a framework and a way to work through it and develop that instrument panel that guides you. So thank you. That's great. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about professional development for FP&A. You know, one thing we're seeing is, you know, the last couple of years have definitely highlighted the need for FP&A. And an interesting thing I saw recently is somebody had posted about how if you take a FP&A job from two years ago, it was two or three years ago to today, there's 20, it's like 23% more uh, skills being listed that are required. So, you know, what do you think are those kind of key skills today that are required and what can professionals do to continue to develop and grow in such a uncertain and rapidly changing environment? Yeah, it's a great question. And I got a great piece of advice going back to the 1980s. And one of the uh, best experiences I had that relates to this topic is when I was division CFO, my boss was terminated, the general manager of the division. And I was asked to look after it for a couple of months, which turned out to be nine months. And so that was a, an incredibly important experience for me from a learning and perspective shifting change. So I, I presented the strategic and operating plans to the corporation, you know, actually participated in the next level operating executive meetings and that type of thing. Forever changed my, uh, my perspective on finance and business performance. But as part of that exercise, Um, My boss, who was a group executive, said, you have to own your own personal growth and development. And there may be systems within the company and you might have uh, HCM or head of people or organization, and they might have processes and that type of thing. But each individual has to own that. And I think that's really good advice right through the ages. So it is important that we think about our development and that we make that uh, an explicit objective each year. So we want to we want to actually make sure that we're spending time in learning and development personally. And so um, by accepting that and by developing a plan um, to grow, what skills, you know, of those 25% that are out there, where do I stack up? What do I have? What don't I have? And what is my long-term career trajectory and direction and even looking a position or two beyond that. In other words, uh, two promotions down the road. What are the critical competencies for that? And, you know, as you alluded to before, Paul, there's been uh, an explosion of people wanting technical requirements, experience with this software or that software. And I think 
Yeah, okay. But those can be learned relatively easily, right? So what I've learned and what many companies are doing now is they're looking for sort of uh, natural abilities and inclinations and drive, knowing that you can teach a lot of the other things to people. So for example, if I know somebody is analytical, they're a good communicator, they are interested in business, they relate well with people, they have a service mindset, that person's going to be very successful in FP&A, even if they don't understand Power BI or some other technology, right? We can teach them that within a relatively short period of time. The other stuff you can't teach. And so um, I think that's really important. And so one of the things that we also have to think about is as, as we service our customers, do we have a reputation for being credible and objective? And I find that finance tends to be typically critical and negative. And this creating more of a balanced approach and always searching for these are the improvement opportunities, but these are the things that are going well. Because I've been in situations where, you know, operating executives have said, do you finance people ever have anything good to say about anything? And there are always things that are going well in an organization. And that balance leads to credibility for sure. Um, becoming a better communicator and presenter is one of those core skills, I think, that's really important. So um, working at that and taking advantage of every opportunity you have to stand up or to write or to prepare presentations is really important. Looking at the people in your organization that communicate very effectively, and while you have to have your own style, you can pick up uh, best practices. There are a lot of great uh, training seminars that are really, really helpful. And, uh, and we, should be, we should think about investing in that. You know, one of the most important things that happened to me was as a CPA, I had to get 40 hours a year of continuing education. And it's always hard, especially us in finance, we're always busy and taxed, forcing myself to find 40 hours. And sometimes I had to work really hard to find good, good topics for CPAs and in industry, but that forced me to continue on that path of getting continuing education and continuing to think and grow and learn and develop. Um, you know, developing a business perspective is, is really important. And some of the more successful FB&A organizations that I'm familiar with don't just hire accountants or finance people. They move people over from marketing or operations and these rotational assignments can be very useful in larger organizations. It's a bit more challenging in smaller organizations. But if you start to get a mix of talent with different skills, but also different perspectives, it really raises the level of the whole organization up. And, you know, the, the critical skills, again, in FP&A are not so much the finance skills, really. They're the analytical ones, the communication understanding the business, and of course, the drive to really uh, be able to distill things down and present them to other people. So, um, you know, that's, that's really important. So I'm a little skeptical whenever I see must have experience. And I just saw one the other day, <laughs> and there were eight technologies listed after it. Well, the likelihood that you have experience with all eight of those technologies is somewhat limited. And they're probably not going to have a lot to do. By the way, this is for a senior FB&A position, like a director level. Um, you know, I would suggest that, uh, you know, the, the people skills, the business understanding, the uh, big picture view would be much more helpful to uh, that person's success than all of those technical skills. So uh, that's very, very uh, interesting. And I think the, uh, again, I go back to that advice that I got about, um, you really have to take ownership of your own career development, think about where you want to be, think about how you're performing on those critical areas and uh, working towards growing and developing yourself. Uh, I talked about rotating staff from other functions. That's terrific if, uh, if the organization can do that. But if you can't, you know, we created process teams at one organization where we pulled people from different functions and put them in, for example, an M&A process. 
so they could learn and be exposed to that process, even though they were outside of finance and also contribute to it. The other opportunity that I, I find a lot of people don't take advantage of is these opportunities where, for example, I've had two situations where my bosses left and I had the position on a temporary basis. Unbelievable opportunities to demonstrate your ability to perform at that level, but also to increase the scope of your thinking and your perspective on things. But there are, there are opportunities every day in terms of special projects. You know, we're, we're working with a consultant to look at this particular business. Well, hey, raise your hand and say, I want to work with that team. Because guess what? If I work with people from whatever consulting house it is and the key business managers, I'm going to learn a lot. And, and you do. And so I find a lot of people pulling away from those kinds of opportunities and just saying, why do that? You're not getting paid anymore. You're not, uh, you're going to have to work more, et cetera. Nobody else is going to backfill the things that you're not doing. So that comes back to make an investment in your future, right? In your growth and development. Thank you. I appreciate the answer and you know, totally agree with, you know, we're, we need to be the navigator of our own career. We need to own our own development and fully behind the idea that it's not so much about the tools. If you have good analytical skills, you understand how to build a model, you understand good principles, you understand communication, you'll figure out the tools, right? I mean, yes, sometimes you might need a technical proficiency, but that usually can be applied to multiple different tools. It's not like, all right, right, eight different tools listed, especially a director, you know, that example really kind of resonated with me. And I love how you talked about doing rotations. You know, I've uh, talked a number of times about, you know, finance should be willing to work outside of finance, whether that's through special projects, whether that's through taking a job that takes you outside of there, whatever it may be. You know, I had the opportunity to start my career in a business analyst role and, you know, some supply chain that weren't in finance and then moved over to FP&A. And those experiences really helped me try to pride myself on being an expert within finance and understanding the business instead of understanding the, the spreadsheet or the financials. Not that I didn't know them, but it was amazing how much I'd get people asking me questions about the business because I always made sure I took the time to learn it. And so I think, you know, you make some great points of focusing the career on the business, charting your own course on those, what we often call soft skills and making sure you have the technical proficiency, but that's not what's most important to developing and advancing in your career. Indeed. Some great points there. So we just have a couple more questions here. We're kind of coming toward the end of this. But one I just wanted to ask you about is you've, you've written two books, one about performance management and one about dashboards and a little bit about, you know, value creation. So maybe can you talk a little bit about why you wrote those books and what do you hope people take away from them? Yeah, when I left the uh, CFO ranks, Paul, I, uh, I decided to focus on helping organizations improve FP&A and performance management and to link value creation down to the operating processes, the deficiency that I, that I mentioned I had seen. And it was interesting. I was teaching at Babson College in the MBA program. And, and this is really to the point. The textbooks we were using were fine and they're classic textbooks. But I kept reading them and saying, geez, this is completely from a financial perspective, from a financial lens. They're not integrating this with business performance and operations and process thinking and that type of thing. And there are several very good ones out there. So I began replacing the readings in the textbooks with white papers I was writing. The first one was cost of capital, which um, it, it just makes people's eyes glaze over in the typical textbook but we, we broke it down and found a way to make it look like, to understand how it impacts valuation and also what are the drivers of that and how do operating people influence the cost of capital. Many times it's believed just to be a finance uh, ownership deal. So um, I had a couple students walk up to me uh, towards the end of that semester. And by this time I had two or three of these white papers and they said, hey, your white papers are like 10 times better than what's in the text. And we were using a, a very highly acclaimed textbook. And I said, well, thanks. And they said, they look like chapters in a future book. And I said, well, maybe. And, uh, and they encouraged me, actually, and was one of the reasons why I, uh, I moved forward with that. 
And so the hope is that uh, they are useful to finance people, but also to non-finance people in terms of understanding how operations connect to finance and to valuation. And also, I thought that there was really nothing out there that sort of took an integrated look at what we think of as FP&A in a very broad sense. So uh, I thought I would take the time and, uh, and do just that. So, well, great. You know, Jack, I'm glad you wrote the books. And, you know, since we kind of got introduced a couple of weeks ago, I've added it to my list as something to look at here in the future, you know, to kind of pick that up and take a look. So I'm excited to learn a little bit more about what you've written there. And that's, you know, great feedback you got from your uh, students. And so I think that will be, you know, a great book for a lot of people because they are subjects that sometimes can be difficult to explain. They can be hard for non-finance people. And so I'm glad you went ahead and wrote that book. So now we're just going to get a little bit, uh, kind of a little bit of fun, a little more personal here as we wrap up. And the first, you know, we're, uh, our podcast here is sponsored by Data Rels, which is a financial planning tool that uses Excel. It's, you know, integrated closely with Excel. And so our question is, what's your favorite Excel function? You know, that's an interesting question. And, and I, I still use Excel quite extensively, but I tend not to be a function guru or passionately interested in functions. And one of the reasons for this is that I see actually a decrease in people's understanding of mathematical functions as we use Excel more and more. And so we can have, I'll use the example of net present value in evaluation analysis. You can do that and you will come up with um, the right answer perhaps, but if you have screwed up anything, as we all know, in any one of those cells or the formula, you're going to get the wrong answer. And it's very difficult to evaluate unless you really understand the mechanics, at least in your mind. So I actually advocate in Excel for um, detailing things out a little bit. So in that present value of a stream of future cash flows, I don't want to just have one NPV number. I want to look at the present value of each of those years of cash flow and the terminal value or post-horizon growth value. And then I can see how that contributes to the total present value or to the total valuation. So, um, and I find that very useful then because then we can say, well, all of this value is based on years eight and beyond. We should be concerned about that you know, because that's where all the cash flow is being generated from. So uh, I think, you know, Excel is a wonderful tool and it gets criticized, but it continues to improve itself. I think where it's used uh, as intended, it is still one of the best sort of dynamic ad hoc analysis tools uh, that I've come across. And as a guy who started with physical green spreadsheets, I'm thankful for Excel every day. <laughs> No, I bet. And yeah, you know, I, I love how you said just the importance of breaking things apart and understanding the math behind it, understanding what's going on. That's that's great advice. And, you know, Excel is a wonderful tool. So next question here, which has got two more left is what's something that not many people know about you? Something they couldn't find online? Maybe, you know, an interesting, interesting thing about yourself. Well, I'm, I've got a, uh, a wide range of interests is probably the, uh, the thing that people would not predict because I've, I've always been intensely focused in my career in finance, but uh, very family oriented. And I've got uh, probably too many hobbies, everything from uh, gardening and propagating plants to and had a nursery business at one point in time to uh, oh, wow. modeling, not uh, on spreadsheets, but actually creating um, physical models of things and recently taken up uh, the guitar as well. And I've been a lifelong fitness enthusiast um, that is coming back to haunt me a little bit with, uh, with a couple of injuries uh, after 50 years of running, for example. But uh, and, I, and by the way, I think that's important to be involved in a lot of uh, different kinds of things, because there are so many things that are metaphors or analogies that exist, for example, in gardening or farming that are important, you know, the idea of planting a seed and the harvest and 
and things of that nature that are really important. And, um, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll find uh, something will occur to me when I'm creating a model of something which, uh, which has uh, relevance to a financial model or some financial issue that you're dealing with. And I think it's really good to, uh, to get your brain into a lot of different uh, areas in terms of critical thinking. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I can, I can relate a little bit to the running and starting to fill it. I'm, I'm a runner and I've done a lot of races and trying to get back in shape and starting to recognize all the little things from over the years. So can, can appreciate that one a little bit and the gardening, trying to do a little bit more of that. So that's great. I, I agree. Hobbies really, you can apply them in a lot of different places. So last question here for our, for our audience. So let's just say someone's starting their career today. They just finished college. They know they want to, you know, do FP&A. What would be the, the number one piece of advice you'd offer them? You know, Paul, that's a really good question because um, what I find, and I've done some teaching since my Babson years, uh, just filling in for people, undergraduate level and graduate level um, recently. And, I'm, and I serve on the curriculum committee at a uh, large university. I'm very disappointed in what still is being taught in the college environment. And there's been a lot of criticism of college and how it prepares you for the real world. And so much of what we're continuing to teach, for example, most universities do not have a course resembling FP&A. Some of them now are putting in analytics, analytics programs, but they're even a little bit different maybe than what, what you or I would suggest. So I think it's really um, trying to leverage what you've learned in college, but recognizing that that the practical application and the things people looking for are going to be very different out in the in the real world. And so finding a job with a mentor or a teacher as your boss and somebody who is going to contribute to your growth and development where there are perhaps these rotational experiences that you have, I think are really important and not getting pigeonholed into a, uh, for example, being a revenue analyst or uh, an OPEX analyst or something like that. You know, the, the downside to these larger FP&A organizations is they become highly specialized in how they've carved up the activity. And, and I've, I don't see as much opportunity for people to become well-rounded, let alone transfer out the organization. And I think, you know, all of this speaks to taking ownership for your learning and development. You ain't done learning. You know, you've just begun really would be the, uh, the best piece of advice, I think, to give people. I love that, that, that idea of just always continue learning. You're just starting. You're just, you know, beginning on that journey. And we'll, you know, we'll end on that note there and just, you know, kind of remind people to learn to, after they think they go through this podcast, try to apply something and learn something new you can do in your job because there's a lot of great material Jack's given us here. I've thoroughly enjoyed the time with you. This has been a great hour and really appreciate you having you on the show today, Jack. And we'll look forward to chatting again in the near future. Thanks, Jack. My pleasure. Thanks, Paul.